Today on The Catholic Hack, I'm going to share with you the day and the hour, even the minutes and the seconds, of when our Lord will come again. So stick around and let's talk about it. Houston, we have a problem. Habemos papan. Podcasting from a parking lot in the Woodlands, Texas, it's The Catholic Hack with Joe McClain. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. The Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Do this in memory of Welcome back to The Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and this is episode number 82. And today we're going to be talking about the end times. What does that mean? What does the church teach about end times? We've actually already done a podcast related to this topic with a special guest, Carl Olson, in his book, um, Will Catholics Be Left Behind? You can actually hear that episode by going on to the blog at www.catholichack.com. Look down the right-hand side, and there is a list of all the shows, and you can look for the one with Carl Olson. I'll actually post links on this on this entry as well. But it was a great show, and we, we sort of debunked the rapture theory, and I'll get into a little bit of that tonight. But I want to talk about the end times and why it's important for us to talk about the end times. It sort of relates to the last episode of Seeking Holiness in this turbulent and crazy times that we live in. As we read the headlines, as we watch television and see all of the nonsense going on, the fear and the anxiety level just sort of skyrockets. And it's very easy for folks who are looking and seeking for answers could find them in all the wrong places, which is why we must bone up on what the church teaches about end times theology and what we can actually expect or else what happens. We get distracted from the truth. And we go down the wrong way, and we are led astray. And we don't want that. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. But first, let's say a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glorious and almighty God, we come before you to praise your holy name, to do your will and your will alone. We seek your provision in this turbulent times we live in, Holy Father, for your grace, your courage, your courage to be saints on earth, to be light in a dark world. Fill us up full of that grace that you've given us in the sacraments. Let us make use of it. Let us tap into it. Let us draw on your very power to serve you in this world. And so I pray for all the clergy, all of the religious, our bishops, our priests, our deacons, brothers and sisters. God, you strengthen them in these times. Protect them. Help them avoid sin and temptation. I pray for families, for their grace and their strength. I pray for all of us. May God have mercy on our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How much do you trust God? 
When our days are pleasant and proceeding as planned, it's easy to imagine ourselves to be very trusting souls. But what happens when the storm arises and the sea tosses our boat? That's when the apostles learned to trust in reality. We should learn from them, find out more, next on Breaking the Bread. Do you not yet have faith? Our Lord's question in this Sunday's Gospel frames the Sunday liturgies for the rest of the year, which the church calls ordinary time. In the weeks ahead, the church's liturgy will have us journeying with Jesus and his disciples, reliving their experience of his words and deeds, coming to know and to believe in him as they did. Notice that our responsorial psalm this Sunday almost provides an outline for the gospel. We sing of sailors caught in a storm. In their desperation, they call to the Lord and he rescues them. Mark's gospel also intends us to hear a strong echo of the story of the prophet Jonah. He too was found asleep on a boat when a life-threatening storm broke out that caused his fellow travelers to pray for divine deliverance and then to marvel when the storm abated. But Jesus is something greater than Jonah, and Mark wants us to come to see what the apostles saw, that God alone has the power to rebuke the wind and the sea. This is the point of this Sunday's first reading. If even the wind and sea obey him, shouldn't we trust him in the chaos and storms of our own lives? As with the apostles, the Lord has asked each of us to cross to the other side, to leave behind our old ways, to travel with him in the little ship of his church. In their fear, they call out to him, teacher, and it is only faith in his teaching that can save us from perishing. We should trust in Christ and like Christ, who is able to sleep through the storm, confident that God his Father was with him. And so we should live in thanksgiving for our salvation, just as this Sunday's epistle tells us, as new creations, no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for our sake. This is Scott Hahn. For breaking the bread. Breaking the bread is a production of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you'd like to receive written copies of Dr. Hahn's reflections on the Sunday Mass readings, you can contact us by email at staff at salvationhistory.com or call us at 740-264-9535. That's 740-264-9535. Learn to trust in God. That's what Dr. Hahn just said. Learn learn to trust in Jesus. We must place our trust in Him if we're to survive these turbulent times. And so let's roll up our sleeves and let's dive deep and let's get into the truth about what the church really teaches about the end times. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! Mr. Hammond, take her down. Make your depth 150 feet. 
10 degree down bubble. 150 feet, 10 degree down bubble. Aye, sir. Dive, dive, dive. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, from paragraph 672 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it reads, Before his ascension, Christ affirmed that the hour had not yet come for the glorious establishment of the messianic kingdom awaited by Israel, which, according to the prophets, was to bring all men the definitive order of justice, love, and peace. According to the Lord, the present time is the time of the Spirit and of witness, but also a time still marked by distress and the trial of evil which does not spare the church and ushers in the struggles of the last days. It is a time of waiting and watching. I thought that was a great paragraph, and there's so many more in that particular article, in that particular section of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There's basically two sections there that I think really deserve your time. Article number seven, it's uh, from thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And then there's another article further along. Let me just get the title here. And it's called Article 12, I Believe in Life Everlasting. Both deal with the end times and the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And we're going to touch on all those topics. And it just so happens that just last week on the uh, Thursday night radio show that I co-host with Josh LeBlanc called Finding Your Keys, a field guide for the everyday Catholic off of Radio Maria in uh, Louisiana, we actually touched on this subject. And in the, in the hour that we had, we, we weren't able to get too deep, but we did go into a lot of this material. And so I encourage you to check us out every Thursday night on Radio Maria. It's called Finding Your Keys. Josh LeBlanc and I try to dig deep into a lot of current events, a lot of current issues, timely topics. And you can actually get more information and sort of follow us along by following us on Twitter. My Twitter name is Catholic underscore hack. And Josh's is J.R. LeBlanc. And I'll actually post those at the website at CatholicHack.com. But I, I felt it's so important as I reflected more and more off the last episode of Seeking Holiness, especially in today's times. Now, you might be listening to this a year from now, two years from now. I don't know. And it, you know, obviously the, the events when you're listening are going to be different than what they are today as I'm recording this. But today, Iran is in upheaval because they have they had an election and the people wanted change. And so now there's violence going on over there. Here in our own country, we have we have a, a chaotic system of government taking over, even though that polls show that the vast majority of Americans are conservative based. Our government and our current administration is completely opposite of the vast majority of Americans. We're vast, we're, we're, the majority of us are pro-life and conservative, and yet our government is pro-death and extremely liberal, extremely Marxist, and extremely socialist. So it's turbulent times, to say the least. And so I think people have a, a natural fear and apprehension of things to come. The church is under attack in the United States. Not as bad as some other places in the world, like China, like in Iraq, like in Africa. There are other places in this world where the church is actually being persecuted to, to, 
to the point of martyrdom. Here in the United States, that's not quite happened yet, but we see kind of see it coming. And just recently, Patrick Madrid on his open line radio program on EWTN actually did a whole show on the persecution of the church back in the 1920s in Mexico, the country just to the south of us, where they outlawed Catholicism and put priests to death. They executed them, forced priests to marry. I mean, it was horrible, a suspension of the sacraments. And that was in the 20s. And we're starting to see the faint signs of those same kind of attitudes here in the United States. In Connecticut, the church is being threatened to have its tax status revoked because it, quote-unquote, acted as a lobby group when it tried to defend itself against legislators in that state who wanted to take away control, command and control of the parishes from the diocese and put them in the hands of, you know, lay ministers or lay people who... Uh, who don't necessarily have the same um, will and intent of the the ordinary of the diocese, the bishop. The bishop, mu- the bishop must defend his diocese, and he is. Praise God and amen. But we must stand up and help him. We must stand up and, and help him fight that battle. Now more than ever, brothers and sisters, we must be salt and light in this world. And the end times are going to come in more and more. People are going to be seeking answers. They're going to be seeking you know, hope for all of these turbulent times. So what will they do? They're going to turn on the television. They're going to turn on the radio and they're going to get an earful of, you know, keep looking up until, until the rapture comes. God's going to rapture you, only the believers out of here and leave everybody else to undergo the tribulation. Is that the case? Are you going to go to the bookstore tomorrow and pick up Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series? Because many of you have. You've probably already read it, haven't you? Oh, I know. It's just an innocent little book. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that innocent little book series actually was quite anti-Catholic and enjoyed taking stabs and jabs at the body of Christ. It is not an abstract concept, the body of Christ. It is a, is a, an actual reality. The Word of God tells us the church is the body of Christ. So to attack the church is to attack Christ himself. And we as the faithful can't allow these little subtle attacks against us sitting down. We must be the voice. We must be the hands and the feet. We must, out of faithfulness, always be ready to give that reason for the hope that lies within. And so as we think of all of those things, I want to talk about the end times. And there are many good resources that I want to share with you in the process of doing this. Uh, for example, John Martinoni on his website, Bible Christian Society, John's been a guest on this show, did a talk on the rapture and the end times and the church's position. You can actually get his talk uh, as an MP3 download off of BibleChristianSociety.com. But John does a great job of detailing and sort of laying out, out, outlining for us what the average Protestant position is on the matter. Emphasis on average. There's so many thousands and thousands of different variations that you can't, obviously, there's no one size fit all. So this is the average, what seems to be the most common view from the Protestant perspective. 
of the end times. Basically, it'll happen something like this. Jesus will come and the and then rapture off the those who are saved, leaving everybody else. There will be a tribulation, you know, a great uh, great time of of horrible activity with persecution, death and punishment and we can't even begin to imagine the kinds of tribulations that will the people will undergo during that time. There'll be an antichrist and false prophets. They will come on the scene and take control over the entire world and people will worship him like God. And there'll be more tribulations. Then Christ returns and slays the Antichrist at Armageddon and throws him into the lake of fire. Then Jesus establishes a physical kingdom on earth and reigns for a thousand years, what they call the millennium, and with his saints at his side. And then the saint, then the Satan is let loose again and gathers an army to wage war, but he's destroyed by fire from heaven and tossed back into hell once again. And then there's the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment in the end. So basically, it's a quick synopsis of the average, the most common approach from Protestant theology. And there are many problems with this particular approach to the end times or eschatology or the end times theology. And we're going to get into some of that. Some of the biggest ones are, of course, the rapture. This is this the reason why we even talk about this one more than the others is just because it's so popular. It's so, you know, it's so infamous in all of its media outlets. You know, the, like I said before, the Left Behind series of books. Not only that, but the movies too. And so you 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 see all these things. There's the mega code. There was just so many different approaches to the end times through media, and a lot of them used the rapture. You see bumper stickers. In case of rapture, this car will be left unattended. Again, that's what uh, Carl Olson and I discussed in the last show. But just real quick, I want to bring up a couple of uh, scripture passages that seem to suggest a rapture theology. And I want to show why they actually don't. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, caught up in the clouds. That sounds an awful lot like rapture. Well, here's the problem with this verse. They sort of skipped over the part that says that first the dead shall rise. Okay, well, if you if you skip over that, if you ignore that and focus only on being caught up in the clouds, well, then, yeah, it sort of seems as though rapture is what's being in, inferred here. But actually, that, that, that part about the dead rising, the dead in Christ will rise first, that's, that is very important. That comes in verse 16, the very end of verse 16. That's very important. Why is that important? Because in John chapter 6, our Lord says, he tells us the order of sequence. And he actually tells us this in other, like Matthew 24, for example. But the dead raise first, then he comes, the end, on the last day. John 6 says, on the last day, when the dead have been raised first, then there's judgment, period, the end. It's on the last day. It's not on a day middle of the tribulation or before the tribulation 
you know, he comes, takes out the, the believers, leaves everybody else, then comes again later. That adds a third coming. You see, there's only two comings. There's the advent of our Lord at his birth. And then the next stage is the next time he comes is at judgment. It's on the last day. John 6, Matthew 24, on the last day where the dead raise first. Then he comes. And, you know, this whole caught up in the clouds. That shouldn't scandalize us. There's nothing here that says he cat he 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 raptures us. If you want to use that word, it actually comes from the Latin Vulgate. So Protestants use a Latin word, which is interesting to me. But they they were caught up in the clouds with him. But nothing here says then he turns around, and takes us back to heaven, leaving everybody else behind. There's nothing that says that here. Just that we we are caught up to meet him, to greet him. And in actuality, in the first century, in the Jewish culture, if someone important was to come visit your city, your town, you would go out of the gates to visit him, to greet him. Just as they did when our Lord entered Jerusalem. They went out, they greeted him with palm branches, and they ushered him in. The same is true today when, say, the President of the United States comes to visit. What happens? They go to the airport and they greet him there and he's escorted in town. So there is nothing here to suggest that anything other than that is actually happening. Happening. So this verse, although it's being sold to us as supporting rapture, in all actuality, doesn't support rapture. Okay. How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What's important here is the fact that the Antichrist actually does play a very key and significant role in the end times. So we're going to get into that and why that is so true from a Catholic perspective. The, the, the final day can't come. That last day can't come until the Antichrist has come. And as we pointed out in the outline of the most common Protestant perspective is that they always show the rapture to take place before the Antichrist comes. And yet Second Thessalonians talks about it couldn't be possible unless the Antichrist came first. So that's a very important point. I want to point, uh, turn now to Daniel, or not Daniel, Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 38. It says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be in the field. One is one will be taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken and one is left. Watch therefore that you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have left his house be bro- would not have let his house be broken into. 
Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You see, there's two in a field. One is taken, one is left. There's two women grinding. One is taken, one is left. There's two people sleeping. One is taken, one is left. You know, that seems to suggest a rapture-like activity going on, doesn't it? No, not really. Why? Well, here's a very crucial point in just plain, basic, bottom line, how to read the Bible. Often, the very context of the verse is ignored. We can't ignore the context, the intent that the author is trying to convey. And for us in this particular passage, the context that's set out at the very beginning of this in verse 38 is what? It's the great flood. It's Noah. It's the people on the ark and those who weren't on the ark. That is the context by which we are to interpret everything else after that. So, in the context of Noah, who was taken and who was left behind? Was it the people who were saved? Were they taken? No, they weren't. They were the ones left behind. The people taken or swept away, those were the bad ones. Those are the ones eating and drinking and giving in marriage acting like the world could just never end. It's always going to be this way. Everything is all good. No. They were taken. So, let me ask you, do you want to be taken, or do you want to be left? You want to be the one left, not taken. The tribulation is referring to, you know, it's bad to be taken. You don't want to be the ones taken. This is a, a tribulation reference here. Not a rapture reference. And so again, this verse is often sold to us as rapture theology, but it's not that at all. And that's very important for us to remember. So if you ever encounter somebody who is trying to sell you rapture, they're often going to point to these verses. And they might even point to other verses. But that's okay. Just read the verses that they're asking you to, uh, to read. And just and read them slowly. Read what's before them. Read what's after them. And really study what's going on. Get the context of the verse. Because often, the context will show, will shine the light that the rapture is not biblical. The rapture is not, you know, something that's a part of end times theology. And so that's why the church does not teach rapture theology. The church, in essence, gives us uh, some signs that we can follow in general to look for the end times. Now, we've all heard that in Matthew 24, actually, our Lord says that no one knows the day or the hour. In that particular verse I just read, it says nobody knows even the hour that the thief will come. So nobody knows the hour when the Son of Man will come. And yet I, at the beginning of this podcast, told you that I would give you the day, the hour, the minutes, and even the seconds of when our Lord would come. And I will. Just be patient. But we have these signs. The church gives us these signs. And Jesus actually gives us these signs himself here in Matthew chapter 24. And I will just briefly uh, summarize them. We have the gospel that must be preached throughout the whole world. We have the mass conversion of the Jews and and the entrance, the full number of the Gentiles entering into the church. We have the apostasy of the Catholic nations. We have the Antichrist. And we have natural and physical disasters 
wars, plagues, rumors of wars, those kinds of things. Those are general signs. Now, even though they're given to us in what seems to be a sort of chronological way in places like Daniel 7 and Revelation 11 and Revelation 17 and even here in Matthew 24, the church also tells us that we can't necessarily think that they are in a precise chronological order, but more in a proximate closeness of time. So we don't fully understand that, okay, on such and such day, this will happen, and then on such and such day, the next thing will happen. It could be centuries. For example, the Jews converting, the mass conversions of the Jews. Well, there are mass conversions of the Jews. Well, not mass, but there are conversions of the Jews today to the Catholic Church, to Christianity in general. Does that constitute the conversion of the Jews? No, that's not the full number of the Jews. What about the Gentiles? Well, we've had the Gentiles in the church now for millennia. And now what are we seeing? We're seeing the opposite. We're seeing the Gentiles leave the church in record numbers. You know, Catholic nations like France, Germany, Spain, all of these churches, all these churches in, in what used to be Catholic Europe are now mostly empty. People are leaving the church. Does that constitute the apostasy? Possibly. You see what I'm saying? It's hard. We don't have the ability to say for certain that these signs that the church has given us through our Lord Jesus Christ, are. we can pinpoint them. We can't put a thumb on them and say, okay, this is definitely the case. Because it's not usually until after the, the prophecy has come to pass that we can actually discern it and actually identify it. It's kind of the same process the church takes when it says I have to, when the church has to judge apparitions, for example. It won't even begin to judge them until after the apparitions end so that it can take in all of, all of its uh, evidence and weigh them accordingly and discern it appropriately. If there's an apparition continuing to go on, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't give judgment. It's inappropriate to do so. The same rule applies to the end times. Yes, there is apostasy today, but the church cannot say that is definitely the apostasy of the sign in the end times or the conversion of the Jews. What about the preaching throughout the whole world? This very podcast will reach the four ends of the, of the known world. There are people in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, and this, you know, the U.S. What the old USSR, the Russian and the Balkan states, the you know, South America, Mexico, the United States, Canada, I mean, all over Europe, Great Britain, even in Egypt and and just the Arab nation. I mean, all over the world, this podcast will go all over the world. Does this constitute an evangelization throughout the whole world? No. It does not. Not even close. So what does? Another great resource that I'm going to share with you is uh, a series that Colin Donovan and Desmond Birch did on the end times. So I'll post a link. You can actually listen to the 13 episodes that they, uh, per, that they put out on EWTN off of EWTN's website, and I'll post a link at catholichack.com. And they bring up this very point, and they say, you know, oftentimes Protestants will say, well, you know, hey, I read, you know, John 3.16, I read that to you, and it says, you know, 
that you have to believe in the Son of God, you know, because he came to give us life, and He, you got to accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. Do you accept him? He died for your sins. Do you accept him? Well, I've evangelized to you. Well, the church says that's not really evangelizing. Yeah, it's a great start to have that passion and that fervor for our Lord and really try to share the love of God in his ultimate love of, of dying for us on the cross. But ultimately, our Lord did more than just die for us on the cross. Yes, absolutely. Critical and important moment. Absolutely. Without fail, without even trying to diminish it. But didn't he give us his body and his blood? In the blessed sacrament? Didn't he give us reconciliation? Didn't he give us anointing? Didn't he give us holy orders? Didn't he give us matrimony? Didn't he give us the sacraments? Evangelizing means reaching the heart of the peoples, the tribes, reaching their heart, really communicating with them, really spending that quality time to reach their heart and convert them. That's what the church thinks of when it thinks of evangelizing, not something that's quick and, you know, and to, to the point. Let me walk into some tribe who's never even seen a, a, a man like me ever before, never even heard the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and say, read him John three sixteen and call it done. That is not evangelizing. That's McDonald's, you know, that's drive through. It requires more effort. And even though the saints have been in some of the most remote places, even from as far back as the first century, we see people going to places like India, St. Thomas, even into China. There's records, there's archaeological evidence of, of Christians have gone to China, even in the first century. But as Desmond Birch and Colin Donovan point out, that does not necessarily mean that they were completely evangelized. And even though there are many places in China, there is actually a church in China. It's actually two of them. There's an above ground and a below ground. There's the state-sponsored church, and then there's the below ground, the underground church that's actually in line with Rome. So even though our Lord is there and he's actually growing and he's working hard there, there's still work to be done. There's still evangelizing to be done. So we basically have these signs that we can go by. And, you know, for further... Uh, to expound on this further, there's another great resource I want to share with you. And this was two audio podcasts from the Catholic Sermon Podcast. And I'll post links again on catholichack.com where they go into St. Robert Bellarmine and his exposition of the end times. And they did a phenomenal job of boiling his, his uh, St. Robert Bellarmine's work down to some very digestible uh, points. And it's just an, it's really expounding upon the signs that I just gave you basically points out that there are six ages, six ages of salvation history. The first age is Adam to the flood. The second is from the flood to Abraham. The third stage is Abraham to King David. The fourth stage is King David to the Babylonian exile. The fifth stage is the Babylonian exile to um, the Christmas to the advent of our Lord. And then the sixth and final stage is from Christmas to his second coming, or the last day. And that last stage, the sixth stage, is actually broken down into two subcategories. That being the Gentiles coming into the church and the Gentiles leaving the church. And if you're asking me, my personal opinion, it would seem very clear to me that we're in the part, the second half of that last stage, of the Gentiles leaving the church. 
And as the catechism said that we just read at the beginning of this podcast, the beginning of this section, was that we're in that time of watching, the time of witness. We have to discern these things. And yet we see these signs unfolding before us. There are wars, there are rumors of wars, there are plagues, pestilences, there are natural disasters. Should we not forget the tsunami that killed like some 200,000 people only a, a couple of years ago? I mean, here in the United States, we've had major hurricanes. I had to live through one just last year. Hurricane Ike here in the city of Houston, Galveston, Houston. So we're living in this um, this last stage. We have been since the since the Christmas, the advent of our Lord. And then St. Robert Bellarmine goes on to give us the signs, again, that we've already mentioned, but as it relates to the Antichrist. He sort of categorizes them based on the Antichrist. There are two signs that precede the Antichrist. Those are the gospel preached in all the world, Matthew 24, 14, and that the Roman Empire must fall. And you, you can find signs of that in Daniel chapter 2 and 7, Revelation 17 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, here again, the Roman Empire, that sounds weird. They haven't been around for a long, long, long time. Well, this is not a literal meaning of the Roman Empire. It's more of a figurative meaning. But the Roman Empire must get out of the way to allow the Antichrist to come onto the stage and take rule over the world. That's what's meant. And again, for further clarification, I direct you to the Catholic Sermons podcast that I will post on my site, catholichack.com, where you can listen to them and get what I'm talking about here. It's really, really good. The two signs that accompany the Antichrist, the preaching of Enoch and Elias, and the savage persecution of the church, and an end to the sacraments, public mass, the preaching of Enoch and Elias is actually quite fascinating because these two individuals never died. I don't think people really realize this, but both of these people lived. They were, they were taken up by God. If you want to use the word rapture, I, I guess you can use it, but they were assumed into heaven is a better word. For example, in Genesis chapter 5, in verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, Enoch was the grandfather of Noah, so we're all related to him. And then if you fast forward into 2 Kings, you see actually in, in chapter 2, starting around verse 9, where Elijah was taken up into heaven by a fiery chariot or in a whirlwind, leaving Elisha down there uh, below to take on his spirit, a double portion of his spirit. So both of these men were not killed. They're still alive today. And they come back, they're used by God in the last times to preach, preach against the Antichrist, to try to turn the people away from the Antichrist and back to the faith. Now, thanks to Elijah, or some people call him Elias, but thanks to Elijah, the majority of the Jews will convert and come into the church. Because at first, the Jews think the Antichrist is the Messiah. Why? Because the Antichrist will be born a Jew, according to St. Robert Bellarmine. He will rule from Jerusalem. He'll institute Jewish laws. And then he'll start to attack every other god except for him. He puts himself up as God. And so it becomes very important for us to realize 
why Elijah can play such a powerful role in the conversion, the mass conversion of the Jews, bringing that prophecy to fulfillment. Why? Because he was a great prophet and he will be effective in turning away the Jews from the Antichrist back to our Lord Jesus Christ and coming into the church. Elias, or Enoch rather, will preach mostly to the the Gentiles, helping to bring them back back from the apostasy of following the Antichrist who sets himself up as God and bringing them back to the church. And there'll be a savage persecution. Because see, the Antichrist, will he will be a savage himself. He will be possessed from his infancy and he will be the perfect instrument of the devil. He will not be the devil. He will just be possessed by the devil. He will be himself a man. The Antichrist is a man. And yes, we all know about 666. That's how you figure out his name. But you know what? The church has forbidden us from figuring out his name based on 666. Why? Because we're going to be fooled if we spend the time trying to figure out his name based on 666. When he comes with a name that actually doesn't calculate from 666, we're not going to see it coming. So instead of wasting our time trying to figure that out, let's just be faithful. Let's just be faithful Catholics living our faith. And then God will protect us. God will see us, give us the strength, even if it means our martyrdom. But th- th- see how we can be deceived so quickly? And that's why God did not see fit to pre-announce the Antichrist. Instead, we're given veiled mystery. It must be for a reason. So let us remain faithful and not be caught up in things like, okay, is it Nero? Is it Diocletian? Those are all Antichrists. But there will be a Those were four types. There will be a another Antichrist at the end of time who will fulfill this prophecy and, and bring about or help to bring about the end of the world when he himself ends up in hell. Okay, there's two signs now that follow the Antichrist, and those are the destruction of the Antichrist and an end of the world. So we have six signs here, two that come before him, two that accompany him, and two that follow after him. Now, once again, let me just reiterate that the Antichrist is going to be a master of the black arts. He's going to be a master of Satanism. He's going to be a master of witchcraft. And uh, the perfect magician is what I think St. Robert Bellarmine actually labeled him. Because through demonic powers, through demonic illusions, he's going to trick the world through things like reenacting his own resurrection. He's going to have a mortal wound of the head, and then he'll be somehow mysteriously re- resurrected. Now, why do you think that might be? So that he can mimic Jesus Christ. And ultimately, he's going to, after he kills Enoch and Elias, and after three days, God raises them up and then assumes them into heaven. The, the, the people, the flocks, the masses who have worshipped the Antichrist as God see him for what he is and freak out. So the Antichrist has got to do something about that in order to get control back. Well, he goes to Mount Olivet and he tries to ascend into heaven through demonic power to show everybody how he is really the only God. Well, it doesn't really work out that way because God strikes him down, sends him into the pit of hell. That's the destruction of the Antichrist. And so here, as we I can begin to wrap this all up, I just want to point out that the church does not show you rapture. Because why? Because in Matthew 24, our Lord tells us that it was through God's mercy that he shortened the days of tribulation because he knew how horrible they would be. Now, why must the faithful undergo the tribulation? Well, at the end of time, 
as we near the last day, on the last day, purgatory comes to an end. There is only heaven and there is only hell. Those who are left to the end must undergo a purging if you're going to enter heaven. Those who are saved have to be purged because in Revelation we're told that nothing clean can enter heaven. You can't unite to the all-perfect God if you yourself aren't perfect. I mean, you'd be just destroyed, infinitely just blown away because he's perfect and you're not. You can't combine those two things. You must be perfected. That's purgatory. And I'll do a whole other podcast on purgatory another time. But that's part of the reason for tribulation. And in Matthew 24, our Lord tells us it's because of the graciousness of God that he limited though that time at all. So what do we have? There will be a tribulation. There will be an antichrist. And the faithful must endure it. Those who are left, those who do not leave, because there will be a great apostasy. People will leave the church. They will leave our Lord Jesus Christ. In those times, the devil is going to do his utmost to fool us to get us to leave. And we must hold fast and stay with our Lord. That's what the church teaches. Not rapture and not any of this other nonsense. So let's hold fast. News and views. Where are you now? I'm sitting in my office. I doubt that. Why would you doubt that? If you were in your office right now, we'd be having this conversation face to face. You know, coming up just next week is the Catholic New Media Celebration in San Antonio, Texas, June 27th. And I've actually gonna have been invited to give a breakout session on promoting Catholic New Media. I'm very excited about that opportunity. And I'm praying that God will help me and to do a good job and to share with people the tools and techniques I've used to help promote this podcast, as well as some of the other things that I work on. But it's very important that um, I take this opportunity just to express just how important Catholic New Media really, really is. Just this last week, I met with a gentleman here in Houston who is himself on fire for the Lord and wanting to share his gifts and talents and aptitudes for the glory of God, and he feels called to do that through uh, podcasting. He actually has a great idea for a new podcast and website that will be more than just a podcast. It's going to be a great resource, and I don't want to share too many details because he hasn't rolled it out yet, and I don't want to spill the beans on it. I'm going to let him do that. I'll be promoting that once he does, but you know that's what I'm talking about. Average, ordinary lay folk like us, and even priests and religious and bishops too, they can, we can all make a difference. And we must make a difference. Because right now, people are, are seeking truth. People want to know that tomorrow is going to be better than today. They want to know that things are going to work out and things are going to be just fine. So what, what do they do? They, they seek things, they seek comfort in, in earthly things that can't provide that heavenly reality that we all know we seek from our soul. What do I mean? People play the lottery, desperately play the lottery. Is the lottery bad? No, lottery's not bad. But it's like, it's, you can almost see that desperation, like, oh, I just gotta, I gotta hit big. It'll take all my problems away. <laughs> Next time you think that money takes your problems away, go find a rich person and ask them if they have no problems. They've got lots of problems. And usually their problems are more expensive than our problems. You see what, but you see what I'm saying? People are seeking hope. 
this is why people end up in new age mysticism and all kinds of wacky theologies. We have to direct them back to the truth. That is Jesus Christ and his church that he founded on the rock St. Peter. And he gave us those sacraments. He instituted the magisterium over his flock. He guides us today through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person, the Holy Trinity. So Catholic New Media plays an important and essential role in the new evangelization set forth by John Paul the Great. You can make a difference. You have your faith. You can share that faith. You don't have to be uh, the most uh, professional-sounding podcaster out there or blogger or videocaster, phonecaster, twitcaster. There's so much nowadays that we can do. I mean, you listen to this podcast. I mean, that you must have lots of graces to get through this thing. You can obviously tell I'm not the best at this. But the point is we share our faith. We step up and become salt and light in the world. And we give our gifts back to God. You can make a difference. You must make a difference. We need more Catholics podcasting and video casting and blogging. We need you to start today. So consider doing that. And if you're going to come to the Catholic New Media Conference, I am so excited. I want to see you. In fact, I've put together a brand new t-shirt design that I can't wait to wear. And uh, and I, with my the slogan that I've always you know promoted now for the last two years to be the donkey that Jesus rides today. And that gets the weirdest looks. But you know what? Come up to me if you see me there and, um, and do me a favor and sign my Bible. It's a great tradition that I've started last year that it's an honor for me to engage in the community. And that's the beauty of podcasting is that this is a community. And I can really feel that community when I give you the book that is so meaningful to me, so sacred, the Word of God, and you can sign that. It just sort of joins that community together. It's a bond. So please do that. That's next week at the Catholic New Media Conference in San Antonio, Texas. Also, coming up in August, I have uh, the next Fullness of Truth Catholic uh, Conference. It's gonna also going to be in San Antonio. And let me tell you, I just launched the promotional effort only a week ago, and it's been out of this world. We're, we've been blessed. We were able to get the uh, Hyatt Hill Country Resort on board to give us a huge chunk of their rooms, as well as their their conference facility to actually hold our entire conference under one roof roof it is a big blessing and we were able to offer 99 dollars a night now these rooms go for normally 300 dollars a night they let us take them for 99 dollars a night and in six days we sold over 400 rooms i mean it is amazing amazing they won't even give me any more rooms I'm completely full i can't get any more rooms at that price it's been amazing so now i've had to go talk to the hilton and these other hotels to uh, get them to give us some discounts so i can actually take care of the rest of the guests at our conference we're only we're halfway through conference registrations in in a in a seven day period it's just amazing we've halfway sold out the conference and I'm only seven days into it and I haven't really even begun promoting it in earnest. That's how amazing this has been. So praise God and amen. It's a Dr. Scott Hahn conference with Michael Barber, Brant Petrie, and John Bergsma. It's going to be phenomenal in the Hill Country in San Antonio. For more information, I want you to go check out fullnessoftruth.org. Up in the right-hand corner of that main screen, there are two links. 
One is to the information page with all the information, and the second one is to register now. So if you're anywhere near San Antonio, Texas in August, you're going to want to come to this conference. But if you're going to come, you better not wait because it's selling out fast. I already had to cut off the childcare list. I have over 100 kids signed up for childcare. That's how amazing this has been. Seven days. It is truly, truly a blessing from God. You know, I don't think I've actually shared this. I think I've uh, failed to share this, but I was featured, as well as some other folks, in an article. Let me just grab it. In an article in the National Catholic Register. This was last month. You know, I've been so busy and so many things going on that I didn't even mention this, but very blessed to have been uh, to have been interviewed by Celeste Behe, and she has an article called Modesty in Motion, where we talked about theology of the body, about young Catholics working in secular media jobs, and how they can adjust, how they can make impacts, how they can be used by God. And this was actually published in the National Catholic Register on May 10th. And what a blessing that was. I've I think it's the first time I've ever been in the National Catholic Register, so I felt pretty, you know, pretty something. That was pretty cool. And you know what? To make things even better, just this week, my boss um, handed me the bulletin from his his parish in downtown Houston. Just handed it to me. And inside his parish bulletin is this article reprinted in its entirety. And it, he didn't even know I did this article. It just sort of caught him off guard. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> I thought that was just pretty neat. So if you have an opportunity, check out this article. It's really, really good. It's called Modesty in Motion, and it's in the National Catholic Register, dated May 10th through the 16th. And the um, author, is again, is Celeste Behe, and you can actually search by authors there on the National Catholic Register website. And I'll post a link to that as well. A couple of other things uh, before we wrap up the show that I want to just bring up. I have an opportunity to, I've been asked, I've been invited to produce another show for um, radio. It'll be played on seven different radio stations. A few here in the United States, like in New York, I think it's the Bronx, as well as Miami. But then I think there's like three or four stations down in South America, um, even Mexico. And I am so excited about having that opportunity. I, I, what a gift to be able to be used by God, to be the donkey Jesus rides today, the pencil in his hand. That's the goal today. And so what a gift. And I have begged God for a long time to be used by him for this purpose. And he's opened a door for me. I'm conflicted because my time is so stretched thin that I'm not sure how I'm going to get done on a radio show on a regular basis other than what I'm already doing. I already do this podcast. I do the Fullness of Truth podcast. I also co-host the radio show with Joshua Blanc called Finding Your Keys on Thursday nights. And I really want to do this other show. It'll probably be a half-hour show. I'm contemplating a title. And um, I want to hear from you. What do you think? Give me some advice. How can I get all this done? Should I get this done? Is this a, a good thing? Should I devote some extra time to I try to carve out a half hour every week to produce the show faithfully or should I not is it too much for my schedule to bear I'm a pretty busy guy like the rest of you so you tell me 
568-568-6277. Give me your feedback. I sincerely want to hear from you on what you think I should do. But I'm really feeling, I just would love to do it. But I want your opinion. So give me a call, 713-568-6277. During this year of St. Paul, Catholics around the globe have been harnessing the power of new media and social networking sites such as Facebook and Twitter to reach out and evangelize to a worldwide audience. Would you like to learn more about Catholic new media, discover how parishes are reaching out to their flock in new and exciting ways? Attend this year's Catholic New Media Celebration being held in San Antonio, Texas on Saturday, June 27th. Hear from keynote speakers, noted author Patrick Madrid and Father Dave Dwyer of Sirius XM Radio's Busted Halo Show. Enjoy a concert by Catholic musical artist Sarah Bauer. Network with Catholic new media professionals and consumers at this day-long celebration. Learn more about podcasting, blogging, streaming video, and more. Hosted by the StarQuest Production Network, leaders in Catholic new media. This year's Catholic new media celebration promises to be bigger and better than ever. For details and registration, visit celebration.sqpn.com. Wait a minute, I can hear you from here. You're saying, Joe, you said you would give us the day, the hour, the minutes and the seconds of when our Lord would come again. And I never heard that. What gives? All right. You want to know when our Lord will come again? Even though we're explicitly told we are not to know that not even the Son knows, but only the Father. Not even the angels know. Not even the church who has been given the gift of, of shepherding over the flock of Christ knows. But somehow I, Joe McClain, the Catholic hack, is going to tell you? Yes, I'm going to tell you. All right. You want to know? All right. Our Lord will come when you die. <laughs> All right. It's a setup. You're probably so let down now, but it's true. Instead of focusing on the day and the hour, as so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters are desperately trying to do, reading uh, the, the headlines as theology, reading the headlines and, and saying that's what we need to be looking for, looking up until, no, that's a distraction. That's a distraction. Matthew chapter 24, read it. Read it, read it, read it. Our Lord says don't be distracted. Here are the signs, but more importantly, live your faith so that when he does come, whenever that is, you will be ready. Don't be those virgins without oil and had to go get it and caught on the outside when the door is shut, when the groom comes. Don't be caught on the outside. You have to live your faith right now. You don't have any more time. There's not a lot of time. Your end is coming soon. Even if our Lord on the last day doesn't show up for another two millennia, you're going to die someday. And when you die, that's the day the Lord comes for you. That day could be today. Are you ready? Are you prepared for your immediate judgment? Is your soul prepared? Do you frequent the sacraments? Those are the avenues of salvation the Lord has given us. That's the ordinary means of salvation. 
So your day is coming. The Lord is coming. And there is a day. There is an hour. There are the very minutes and seconds that have been set aside for you. That's what you need to be prepared for. And that day is the day that you die. And so that's my message for you. That's the whole point. That's what we led up to. Don't be distracted by this crazy theology. Let's focus on our Lord and what he gave us through the church. And let's share that gift with all the world today. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Based on digital.